Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a multi-church, multi-city movement of truth, love, and community. For information, visit vintagechurchmovement.com. Here is this week's message. Well, good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of 1 John. If you're new to Scripture, that is uh, almost the very last book. There's Revelation, there's a couple more books, and then there's 1 John. If you need a copy of God's Word, lift up your hand. Our Connect team has copies that they would love to get in your hand and uh, so we can read that Word together. We have uh, kicked off this series called Changes. Last week we were in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, really looking at what Paul says about how we change, about how we uh, are transformed by the Lord, how our minds are renewed so we can do and be who God wants us to be. So that's where we were last week. Today we're in 1 John. Next week, I'm really excited, we are going to have a very special guest, our very own uh, V Women coordinator, Christy Hagens, is going to be joining me. And so uh, be prepared for that. If I am boring to you, uh, get excited for a little different flavor next week. And she's going to be joining me uh, to talk about seeing the whole picture, about that when we're talking about change, we're not just looking at one part of ourselves, but we're looking at the whole Part. I want to encourage you, if you're new, you're looking for resources, you're looking for these sermons, our V-group studies, sermon notes, everything is right there at that link. You can find everything, including several uh, resources like books. We're going to be adding some podcasts and other things that are related to the idea of changing and how we change. And so all of that is there for you. Uh, Feel free to go there and grab whatever you can that might be helpful for you. Today's message is uh, entitled, Don't Believe the Hype. And as I thought about not believing the hype, I thought about social media. Right, uh, And so uh, we were in our, uh, our meeting this past week, and one of the things that we do every week as a staff is uh, whoever's preaching the word kind of gives their outline, shares kind of where they're going to get some feedback, to get some uh, maybe uh, illustrations or examples, ways that we can strengthen our message. And so I started talking about uh, Facebook, and I started talking about how you know I started using Facebook when I was a freshman in college. And Montre Wyatt laughed at me, like literally laughed as if I'm old, right? And so he, uh, you know, he was laughing, and then he basically said, like, he's like, nobody, nobody cool uses Facebook anymore. And I was like, wow, right? Just unbelievable. But I thought about Facebook, and I remember getting on Facebook. I was a, a freshman in college. It had just come out. No one knew anything about it. And the reason you got on Facebook was to stay connected with people that you've met in your life. And at that point, I had changed colleges, and so there were people at the old college that I wanted to stay connected with. And so I got on Facebook. Fifteen years later, here we are, right? And uh, We recognize that Facebook, I mean meta, right, it's meta now, it's not Facebook, has ulterior motives, that it's an attention economy, that they want to suck your life of all of your time and energy so that you'll stay on it, you'll like and you'll share and your focus and your attention will be on Facebook. Now listen, are there good things about Facebook? Well sure, social media has good things. But also, don't believe the hype. 
there's a reality that their intentions are not completely pure. And in the same way as we think about social media, I want us to think about our life, our culture, our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions. Ultimately, what we're going to be talking about today is sin. And I know that's not the most exciting topic to talk about, right? But around all of this, I think what's important for us to be reminded of is we cannot believe the hype about sin. Now, I know you might be thinking in your mind, well, of course I don't believe that. But when you're in the moment of a particular thought or a particular feeling or a particular action, it's easy to give in to the hype. And what we're going to see in God's Word today is that we can't believe that hype, that the thing that we're talking about today is the very reason you and I need change. It's the very reason that every new year comes around and we're thinking about how can we change, what can we alter, how can we be better. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Again, if you have a Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 2. We're just going to read three verses, verses 15 through 17. But here's the big idea that I want you to get. We can change, everybody say change. We can change when we love the right things in the right order, in the right way. Now, another way to say this is we can change when we love the right one. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. In the right order, in the right way. 1 John chapter 2, here's what the Apostle John says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that is, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides or remains forever. Change begins, number one, when we love the right one. Change begins when we love the right one. Go back and look at verse 15 again. There is this comparison that John makes between the love of the world or loving the world and the things of the world and the love of the Father or loving the Father. He says this, do not love the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. In order to understand what John is saying in this passage, you have to understand what he means when he uses the word world. What is the world? Last week I shared this. The world here does not refer to people. In some instances in the New Testament, when the word, it's cosmos, when that word is used in the New Testament, it can refer to people. In fact, that's what the gospel writer, the John, the Apostle John, who also wrote this letter, uses when he writes what most of us know is one of the most famous scriptures. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? That's referring to People, that God loved the world so much, he loves people so much that he sent his only begotten son. But that's not what John is referring to here. 
I talked about this a little bit last week, thinking about the world is that it's more of a systematic understanding. Here's how one author describes it in his book, Live No Lies, which I would highly recommend to you. Here's how he describes the world. It's a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that pretty much includes just about everything, doesn't it? that are integrated, that means they're brought into the mainstream and institutionalized in a culture. They become the way of life. They're corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God, meaning they are opposed to God, and there's a redefinition of good and evil. So when the Apostle John is writing here in 1 John chapter 2, and he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, here's what he's talking about. What he's referring to is do not love those things that are opposed to God and God's ways. If you're going to change, you have to love the right one. And in order to love the right one, you cannot love God the world. Now, where did the world come from? We talked about this last week. We read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, and we talked about those three things that are in the, that, those three verses. Number one, the, decept- the devil's deceptive ideas. That a lot of times the way the enemy, Satan, the devil, works against us is he begins with what we think about. And he begins to deceive us with ideas. He twists the truth. So those deceptive ideas then lead to disordered desires. That we have these desires that are within us. And listen, not all desires are bad. It's good to feel things. But what Satan does is he twists our thoughts and our ideas, which then lead us to have disordered or the wrong desires. And all of that then moves us to this place where the world normalizes sins based on the fact that we believe these certain things that are lies and we feel these certain things that are disordered. The world begins to say, hey, guess what? This is actually normal. And what the Word of God says and what Jesus wants us to understand is that that is not normal. That's not the way in which we are to live. So if we're to love the right one, how do we have the love of the Father in us? Now, John is writing to this church in this letter and he knows that these, he knows his audience. He knows that these people are followers of Jesus. And so what he's getting at is he's basically saying, listen, I know that the love of the world is not in you because you are of and in and with Jesus. Therefore, the love of the Father is in you. And all of this begins with that. We cannot love people or love God until we first have received God's love. And what this writer, the, 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 the Apostle John, is getting at is the only way for us to receive that kind of love is to receive who? Jesus. And the only way to receive Jesus is to recognize that you and I, we have a great need before God, that God created us 
and that we are created in his image. We were created to be in relationship with God, but there is a chasm between us and God that's called what? Sin. Now, we don't like to talk about that, but that's the reality, that there's a separation. We were created to be with God, but sin separates us from God. And we can look at that and we can be like, man, that's a bummer because there's nothing we can do to get, get back to God. But what the Apostle John reminds us of is that God, not us, not the offender, but the one who has been offended, has made a way. And the way that was made is Jesus, that he came. He is God, fully God, came to earth, put on flesh, and became fully man. And in being fully God and being fully man, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He went to the cross, that that ultimate pain, that ultimate suffering, that ultimate way of death, and died not for his sins, but for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell, reigning victorious now. And what the audience of this letter knew, and John was referring to, is that that is the answer. That is the way in which we are able to love God and love people. It's because we first have experienced God's love. But the only way to experience God's love is to accept and receive God's love. God's love is there. It's present, but you have to take it. And the way the Bible describes, the way the scriptures describe taking God's love is, number one, repenting, turning away from the way you have been living. The very thing that separates you from God, you have to turn away from that. And in faith, turning to Jesus and the cross and recognizing that his death and his resurrection is the very thing that can save you and reconcile you to God. And then you have to publicly confess that. And the way the scriptures describe that is through baptism, being buried with Jesus underwater and coming up, being resurrected with Jesus. That when we go under the water and we come up out of the water, we're confessing to God and everyone present that I follow Jesus. That is the way in which you and I, we experience this love that is from the Father. And it's the very way in which we are able to then love the true and the right one. And once we received that love, we are able to love him and love others in return. But here's the thing, God's love always requires undivided loyalty. I mean, do you catch that in just this first verse where John is saying you cannot have it both ways. You love God or you love the world. It's not both. I mean, think about it like this. You cannot be a New Orleans Saints fan and at the same time an Atlanta Falcons fan. It's impossible Right? That is an, that's, a, that's an impossibility. You cannot have a MacBook and at the same time an Android phone. Right? I know some of you try to do it. It's impossible. Right? You cannot say you love your spouse and at the same time actively be in an affair. You can't. You cannot say that you love God and at the same time say you love the world. What God requires of us is undivided loyalty. Now here's the thing. This is difficult 
when you doubt the existence of an enemy. It's difficult when you begin to believe the lies that that enemy says is truth. It's difficult when you believe that you have permission to live however you want, and then those desires become normalized within our world. It's difficult. But what John is telling us is that if you want to change, all of this begins with choosing to love the right one, God. So if you want to change, you begin by loving the right one, but then you get to the reality of how do you then love the right one. Change begins, yes, with loving the right one, but number two, it begins when we understand his expectations, Right, You begin to understand what God wants from you. You then are able to know how you are to love him. Look at verse 16. He says, Do not love, you cannot love the world and love God. And then he describes to us what is in the world. He says, For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. So what does John say that comes from the world? Number one, he says it's first the desires of the flesh. That word desire, if you read other translation, you might read lust or you might read craving. At the core, it's an anxious self-seeking. Now I just want you to imagine that idea, an anxious self-seeking. That is what it means to pursue the desires of the flesh. Desire is a weird thing, is it not? It's like a fire that starts and begins to smoke. I'm amazed when I hear these stories about these wildfires that like literally start with like a backyard campfire. And all of a sudden, in a matter of hours and days, they consume thousands of acres. Desire works the same way. Our desire can often begin with a very controlled fire. I mean, there's the fire, it's under control, it's guarded by like a fireplace, and you feel like it's safe. But then all of a sudden, it starts to rage out of control. It's outside of the boundary that you put it in, and you can no longer put it out. That's what John is referring to. It's the desire of the flesh. Our flesh is our sinful nature. We sin because we have a sinful nature. We're not sinful because we sin. Do you understand the difference? It is built in. God didn't create us this way, but because of our parents' first sin, you and I have an inclination to sin. Again, I always say this, if you don't believe that, just be around a small child, right? Or even better, small children, right? Together, the collective, and imagine what they do. It's like Lord of the Flies, you know? There is a sinful nature. And the idea of having a sinful nature and the desires of the flesh, it includes things like, yes, sexual lust, but it includes so much more than that. Things like envy, gluttony, drunkenness, and more. The desires of the flesh are ultimately the desires that draw us away from God. The desires of the eyes, just think about everything we just mentioned with the desires of the flesh, and then it's just this. It's not just what we feel, it's also about what we see. 
And more than ever before, we are inundated with information. And I'm not just talking about words on a page. I'm talking about videos and pictures and visuals. And it's not, again, yes, it's sexual lust. But it's even more than that. You're watching a commercial. You're seeing somebody with this thing. And you're like, man, I want that thing. By the way, that's a sin. It's called envy. We're inundated with these things. And lastly, it's about the pride in possessions. That idea is it's about boastfulness or an arrogance of life. There's a pretentious arrogance or a subtle elitism due to your view of your wealth, your rank, or your stature. And what John is getting at is that these three things, this is the way of the world. And when you begin to pursue those things, you're no longer pursuing the Lord. Now here's the thing. Some of us are just running full tilt after those things. And it is obvious that you are not loving the Lord, but you are loving the world. But most of us, I would venture to guess, are not running full tilt after those things, but we are creeping after those things. And we are blinded by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of our possessions to see that, in fact, we love those things. We love the world more than we love God. And if we would slow down long enough and we would be introspective enough and we would seek the Lord and we would be in His Word, we would see where there are desires of the flesh, where there are desires of the eyes, where there are pride of possessions. Those are the things of the world. Now here's the interesting thing for me as I think about this. Why are these God's expectations? Why does the Lord say, stay away from these things? Why can't we have those things? We are all created. Every single human has been created in the image of God, meaning we're not going to be God, but we have been created to be like God. And if we're in His image and we're created to be like Him, similarly, we have been created by God to be in relationship with Him. That is God's original intention. That's what God wants for you and I, to be in relationship with Him. I've shared this quote many times, but I think it's so important for us to wrap our minds around what God's intention is for our world. It's the way things are supposed to be. Listen to this quote. What he's defining is this Hebrew word, shalom. And at its most simplest, it simply means peace. But you will find that it means so much more than just what we think of when we think of peace. Listen to what this author says. He says, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts faithfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. This is God's intention. This is what God wants for us. 
He wants us to live in a world where there is no guilt, where there's no guilt because we've done nothing wrong. We're living in harmony with God. We're living in harmony with one another. We're living in harmony with our created world. He wants us to live in a world where there's no shame, where, where there's no shame because we've done nothing wrong and no one's done nothing wrong for, uh, to us. And therefore, we see ourselves and know ourselves as God sees and knows us. He wants us to live in a world where there's no pain and ultimately where there's no death. You and I, we were not created to die. You understand that, right? The reason we die is because we've believed the hype. We think that what the enemy is giving us is a better way to life, which ultimately leads to death. And God is saying, no, the way to life is not that way, but it's my way. So we know that this isn't the reality yet. We've sinned, and we've been sinned against. And I want to take a moment just to differentiate, because I think this is important for you and I, to differentiate the difference between guilt and shame. Because in our culture, I think these are two elements that we deal with and we don't even realize that we deal with them. Again, I'm going to quote from John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. I can't encourage you enough to go and get you a copy of this book. It's an easy read, but it is profound. And listen to what he says about guilt and shame. He says, guilt is about the what. You feel guilty because of what you have done or what you haven't done. Shame is about the who. Guilt says what I did was bad. Guilt's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. When you've done something wrong, you need to feel guilt. If you no longer feel guilt, there's a problem. But shame says this, I am bad. Guilt thinks to itself, what I did was unloving and I need to make it right. Shame thinks, I am unlovable and there's no hope for me. Now, I share this because I want you to understand that this is not God's intention for us. God doesn't want you to feel guilt. He doesn't want you to feel guilt because he doesn't want you to commit actions and sins that lead to guilt. God doesn't want you to feel shame because the reality that you're feeling about yourself isn't true. This is why these are the expectations that God puts before us. Because he doesn't want us to feel guilt. He doesn't want us to feel shame. He doesn't want us to feel pain. He doesn't want us to experience death. But when we choose sin, when we choose the devil's deceptive ideas, when we choose disordered desires, when we choose the world's normalized sins, we choose that way and not God's way. And when we choose that way and not God's way, that's when we begin to feel guilt and shame, the very thing that God doesn't want us to experience. I compare this all the time. God is that loving father that is trying to warn his children to not do this or that because of the consequences they will experience. I mean, as, as a dad, I'm constantly reminding my kids, listen, you you do not want to do that. Whether it's a short-term consequence of what they'll experience or whether it's a long-term. I mean, getting my kids to do homework, I mean, you would think I'm negotiating peace between Israel and Palestine. 
But I'm trying to help them understand that in the long term, if you do your homework, it's not even about the homework you're doing. I could care less about whether or not you understand that math problem in this moment. But the point is building in a work ethic because that ethic will matter in 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. And God is the same way. You might look at your life and think, is it that big of a deal that I believe this teeny tiny lie? Is it that big of a deal that I have this disordered desire? Is it that big of a deal that I act out on that sin? And in the moment, it might look like this teeny tiny thing. But what you are doing to yourself is you're leading yourself down a path to choose the world's ways rather than God's ways. To choose the way that leads to death rather than the way that leads to life. God does not want you to experience death. He wants you to experience life. So we're to love the right one. We are to understand his expectations. And change begins lastly when we choose what lasts. Look at what verse 17 says. John has been trying to set all of this up. He says, listen, you cannot love God and love the world. Here's, here's what the world will tell you to do. And he lastly is saying, listen, if the world looks enticing to you at all, understand this, the world is passing away. I mean, it's disappearing. It's moving out. It's a vapor that is gone. It's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides or remains forever. So what's going to last? If the world won't last, that means the devil's deceptive ideas, the flesh's disordered desires, the world's normalized sins, they will not last. If you're chasing after those things, you're chasing after something that one day will not be. God says the thing that will last is whoever does the will of God. We talked about this last week, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says that if we are transformed by the renewal of our mind, we'll be able to discern what is the will of God. And how did Paul describe the will of God? He said this, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. What will last is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. What will last is who God wants you to be and how God wants you to live. So the will of God for us is, number one, that we would believe the truth. There is truth. And God wants you to believe that truth. In order to believe the truth, you have to fill your mind with truth and not lies. Which means there should be a focus on the source of truth. The source of truth is what? It's God. And if God is the source of truth, he's given us his inspired divine word, his scriptures that are truth. So the way in which we begin to believe the truth is we read the Bible consistently and regularly. And I'm telling you, here's what I know you're thinking, because I think it. it's the lie that the enemy feeds me. 
man, if you read this today, is it really going to make a difference? Is it really going to make a difference? Is one day going to make a difference? Maybe. But I'll tell you what will make a difference, a lifetime. And habits are formed one day, one decision at a time. The way in which you and I, we believe the truth is we fill our minds with the word of God. We pray to God by the word of God. Pastor Weaver talked about the F260 plan. He talked about his refocused devotional. Listen, I don't care what you read as long as you're reading his word. But if you don't know where to begin, the F260 plan or Pastor Weaver's refocused devotional is a good place to start. What would happen if you filled your mind more with the scriptures than you did with anything else? Imagine the truth you begin to believe. Number two, you have to desire the truth. My question for you is, what are you giving into? We all have desires that we're giving into. Whether it's 9 p.m. at night and we want that piece of king cake. Or whether it's 9 p.m. at night and we're sitting in front of our computer wrestling with the desire whether or not we're going to look at porn tonight. Both of those are desires, by the way. Don't give in to disordered desires. For you and I, my encouragement to you is, is twofold. Is Number one, this is where confession becomes so important. And we don't like this. And I, if I'm just being completely honest with you, I have not cultivated this in my life where I have individuals in my life that I can openly and willingly confess my sin to. But you and I, we need that kind of confession where we're confessing our sins and we're being held accountable. Number two, I would encourage us, myself included, to fast. Some of the reasons that you and I experience the disordered desires that we have is because we don't know how to live without those desires. But if we would actually cut some stuff out of our life and say, you know what, for the next 30 days, for the next 60 days, I'm choosing to live without those things. Imagine what begins to happen internally when you're able to say, you know what, in order to live, I don't need those things anymore. You have to desire the truth. And lastly, you have to live the truth. This isn't just about what you know. It's not just about what you feel. Those things are important, but it's ultimately about what you do and what you don't do. So what are you living out? Again, this is the significance of things like worship. Coming here on a Sunday morning, I recognize that this is not the end-all, be-all. But my encouragement to you is to understand Sunday mornings as the bare minimum. This is not what makes you a Christian, but every Christian should be doing this. And again, you might be thinking to yourself, well, is it that big of a deal that I miss a weekend? Well, maybe not. But imagine what you doing this for the next 30 years, 52 weeks out of the year, will do to you. It's the importance of worship. It's the importance of service. 
When you begin to think less about yourself and actively begin to meet other people's needs, it's amazing what God will do in you and through you. Why do we need to change? Every single thing we've been talking about comes back to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I read that passage, and I imagine that Eva's in this place where she feels backed up into a corner with no other decision but to take the fruit and eat it. Now, cut fruit out and put any other sin that you wrestle with. And you might feel the very same way. That in that particular moment, it's difficult to not believe the lie. It's difficult not to feel that disordered desire. It's, not, it's difficult to give in to that normalized sin. But I don't want you to walk away thinking there's absolutely no hope. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is at the cusp of his ministry and he's been in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It's interesting what the gospel writer tells us. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you get to the end of 40 days and 40 nights and you haven't ate a thing, what are you? Yeah, you're hungry, right? I fast for four hours and I'm hungry. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he's hungry. And then Matthew writes that it was the Spirit of God who led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And listen to what happens. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? We all said it. He's hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, that is Satan, that is the very one that tempted Eve in the very beginning, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Is Jesus the Son of God? He is. But Jesus answered, it is written. Where is it written? It's in Scripture. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The incredible reality about this passage for me 
is that Satan doesn't necessarily tell him anything that's not true. In fact, Satan quotes Scripture to Jesus. And yet, Jesus does not give in. Jesus is the model for us. You want to know what it looks like to be able to resist sin, to not believe the hype, to love the right one and follow his expectations and live for him. It is Jesus. He is the model. He is the example. But here's what I want you to understand even more so, is he's the means by which you and I will be able to experience the change and live the life that God wants us to live. So in that moment of temptation, in that moment where you're like, man, I don't want to do this anymore. In that moment when you don't want to believe the truth. In the moment when you want to give in to your desires. In that moment when you feel like there's no way forward. Remember that Jesus not only modeled the way, but he empowers the way. Change can happen. We talked about that last week. It's hard. It will be difficult. But it can happen. And it happens when we look to Jesus and follow him. When we love the right one. When we understand his expectations. And when we live for him. That's how we change. Do you want to change? What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you love us. That you love us so much, Father, you didn't leave us in our sin. You didn't leave us separated from you with no way back, but you provided your son, Jesus. That we would have an example of what it looks like to follow you. That we would have the power that Jesus gives us to follow you. That we can change, that we can be different. And so, Father, help us in this moment, God. Help us to figure out what it is about today that we need to do different, how we need to live our lives differently, how we need to be different. God, whatever it is, help us. We give this time to you now, Father. We love you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name.